Outlaws and Scorned Women is intended for entertainment purposes only. Nothing on this show should ever be construed as actual legal advice. Also, it is chock full of adult content, so we do recommend a little bit of listener discretion. episode you know i totally forgot to do what i forgot to tell the buttercups to buckle up oh our little buttercups went into that whole story (laughs) not a buckle among them i feel like the worst podcast parent i mean they were just teetering on the edge just bouncing around in the back of the station wagon (laughs) brains like jello world So um, maybe I'll remember to do that today. Uh, oh. <laughs> see, that's important. <laughs> that's important like stuff. the line. Say the line. <laughs> you have to buckle up. Uh, it's dangerous to go without. Anyway, uh, so hey, y'all, welcome back to Outlaws and Scorned Women, the podcast that explores the criminal history of the great state of Texas. My name is Stephanie. I uh, used to be a theater kid, and now I am a, a happy little chubby bunny quarantine shut-in uh, and engaging in some escapism uh, from the day-to-day life with looking into true crime with my friend and co-host. I'm Stephanie. I'm a yeah lawyer slash mom slash work from homer, worker from home. Yeah. I think it's worker from home. Yeah. 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 Kind of like mothers-in-law. Um, I mean, I feel essential, but really, uh, <laughs> I think that's a subjective determination. You are essential to me. Oh, <laughs> Okay, so um, what we are doing today, we are in part two, chapter two of our deep dive into um, the Branch Davidian compound fiasco situation that went down in the city, outside the city of Waco, Texas, Back in the late 80s, early 90s. Uh, if you are just joining us, uh, I recommend bounce back to our chapter one episode. It gives you the whole background into like how the Branch Davidians came to be. And then pick us up here. Uh, quick note. I wanted to, to clear something that had been troubling me about last episode. Um, last episode, we did talk about Vernon Howell and how he had a very unhappy childhood. And I I told that part of Vernon Howell's story, who would then later grow up to be, I mean, spoiler alert, he's David Koresh. He changes his name and he becomes David Koresh. Yes, that David Koresh. Um, but I told the story about Vernon Howell's uh, terrible childhood, not to make you sympathize with him, but to sort of sharpen the perspective on his actions that we're about to talk about. Mm-hmm. Because uh, we've talked about this before, I think with uh, Charles Whitman, that a lot of people have a shitty childhood mm-hmm. and a lot of people have abusive parents and a lot of people have a learning disability or, um, you know, are, are brought up in a really oppressive conservative household and they don't do the shit that David Koresh did. That's right. And even if you find elements of sympathy, that doesn't mm-hmm. mean that you are in any way condoning right. the, the series of actions and behaviors that culminated mm-hmm into you know this event yeah Yeah. i mean like 
poor baby Vernon. I I feel for baby Vernon, but um, I have no feeling of any kind of positive or sympathy, sympathy or empathy for what he grew up to be. And, you know, he grows up to be this because he chose. These are choices. It's a series of horrific choices were made that led us that... Basically, if you find yourself the subject of a true crime podcast, you took a wrong turn <laughs> at some point. Right. Uh, and arguably, David Koresh took several. And a mitigating circumstance is not absolution. It just is. <laughs> <laughs> I am going to take your lawyer phrases, your little lawyer gems like that one, and just make an entire, like, hand-stitched pillow out of them for you. A mitigating circumstance is not absolution. Oh. Snap in a Z formation when you say things like that. Oh. <laughs> I will take the pillow and I will put it, you know, on a wingback chair and there it will sit <laughs> nice, so that everyone nice. can enjoy it. Absolutely. So, <laughs> so yeah, today uh, we are going to be continuing our story uh, about the happy fun times at the Branch Davidian compound outside of Waco, Texas. So, haha, buckle up, buttercups. Let's get into it. I remembered. Yes. <laughs> When last we left our story, David Koresh, freshly minted messiah of the Branch Davidians, had assumed full control over the 100 or so members of his congregation that were living at Mount Carmel, their compound, compound, really? Compound outside of Waco, Texas. And uh, it was actually kind of an exciting time, right? Like, it's a new dawn. It's a new day. Like, let's let's shake things up and make a few changes around here. Like, rearrange the furniture, open the windows, air the place out. So they started with the compound itself, right? So Mount Carmel was this 77-acre piece of land, and the families of the Branch Davidians had sort of been living in these little scattered houses around the property. Well, no more. Uh, the houses were leveled, and everybody got moved into the central buildings there's this cluster of buildings uh, constructed in the middle of the Mount Carmel property. And uh, this is this was now the hub of all life at Mount Carmel was these buildings. They included a three-story dormitory for everybody to live and sleep, a gymnasium for the exercising, a big kitchen for all the group meals, a chapel for worship, you know, the one with the doomsday clock on the floor, um, an armory for storing all the guns, a full-size school bus completely buried in the ground with a secret entrance leading up behind the chapel for taking shelter from tornadoes or bombs or the apocalypse, you know, whatever. The beast. As it were, a firing range sunk into the ground for practicing your paramilitary tactics without being easily observed from the road over the flat landscape of Waco. You know, I mean, nothing too weird. Just pretty sensible stuff. And if it seemed like it was all really close quarters, like everybody was in everybody's business all the time, and nobody ever really had any privacy or time to think their own thoughts outside of the overwhelming presence of David Koresh himself, well, that was by design. Yes. Because that is how cult leaders do. That's right. It's that pressure cooker to keep you, mm -hmm. you know, in that constant state of anxiety or trauma. Right. Yeah. Keep you constantly looking towards like the end. So you are completely mm -hmm. dependent on the leader. It was almost like he was trying to recreate that 
you know, when they got expelled from Mount Carmel by George Roden and they all had to go like camp in Palestine and it was miserable, but it was awesome because it was like super hyper togetherness time and everybody really bonded. Like he was trying to recreate that environment on the compound. So we're all, it's all like elbows in each other's faces packed in together in this, this place. Is the end times for these folks. Yeah. End of days. We got to hunker yeah. down. Here it is. Uh, the end is always, always and forever nigh. <clears throat> but anyway, all of that is just setting the stage for the command performance that is David Koresh's overhaul of the Branch Davidian dogma. So uh, prior to his taking over, uh, it had been a pacifistic matriarchal group. And um, <clears throat> so David's a man and he's in charge. So we're patriarchy now. And also, uh, there's guns on the property. There's guns that had been used in shootouts on that property. And almost everybody there has been trained in the use of said guns. So pacifism, out the window. We're not doing any of that anymore. David had declared himself to be a messiah. He's chosen by God to open the seven seals of the book of Revelation and usher the Branch Davidians through the apocalypse and into the kingdom that would come after. Like, that's some heavy stuff. But... That's not for the new people. We're trying to recruit new followers and new people. We don't roll out the heavy stuff right away. Right. You got to sort of soften them up and lure them into that. So with new people, his entire preaching approach was very aw shucks modesty, right? He's like, his whole shtick was, I'm just a messenger of the Lord. And if these people, these Branch Davidians around me, they think that I have some kind of special wisdom, that's fine. But really, I'm just a guy. I'm just a dude with a message. And when the message runs out, I will no longer be that dude. And that is fine. And this uh, self-effacing charm that he had combined with rock and roll music, Christian rock and roll music, allowed him to build an even sort of broader appeal to attract younger followers, particularly young men. And he would travel the world and he would actively recruit. And this approach worked. He drew in socialites from Hong Kong, families from Australia, people from all across the U.S. were drawn in to Mount Carmel, to the Branch Davidians, by hearing whatever it was they needed to hear in David Koresh's message. Um, one particular example that struck me, because uh, you can't get away from this guy. Um, there's a man by the name of David Thibodeau. And when you are researching the Branch Davidians, David Thibodeau is unavoidable for comment. He's everywhere. Like he has made his post Waco siege career talking about being a Branch Davidian. So David Thibodeau all over the place, but he wasn't always a Branch Davidian. In the late 80s, he was just a not terribly successful musician living in LA. And he's jamming out on some drums in a guitar center store and in walk these two guys. And they start hanging out. They're talking music. They introduce themselves as Steve and David, Steve Schneider and David Koresh. Steve Schneider was David Koresh's lieutenant, his right-hand man in the Branch Davidians. And they're just like, hey, man, this is really cool talking to you. If you ever want to like hang out again and maybe jam, here's our card get in touch. And David Thibodeau takes the card and he's like, okay, cool. And he looks at it and there's all these Bible verses on the card. And he's like, you know, I don't, I don't think I'm going to do that. It was nice meeting you, but that's, that's really not for me. And they were like, no, it's no pressure. No worries. You know, just, just hold on to the card. And if you change your mind, look us up, it'll be fine. Sure enough, days later, 
David Thibodeau is like, I cannot get that meeting out of my mind. And he calls them up and he, uh, and he goes and he hangs out with them and it's casual. And he starts to get the idea through, um, David's interactions with some of his followers that he had with them that there was more to this group. Basically, the deal that was presented to him was you can hang out and you can be casual and cool and chill and just be musicians with us. But if you want to learn the secrets, if you want to hear the prophecies, if you want to gain a greater understanding of the universe and your place in it, you come with us. You come home with us. You come to Mount Carmel and you can stay and you can have all of that. You just have to follow the rules. And David Thibodeau was fine with that. Hook, line, and sinker. Y'all can't see it. Stephanie is miming, reeling in the big fish. Just, yeah. <laughs> that is. That's right. It's always, it's always afterward that you learn mm-hmm. what's going on with this group that's just embracing you with their loving arms. And yeah. Here's all these pretty girls. Here's all this cool music and these talented musicians. And, and special like, knowledge. Yeah. And if you want to learn the key to being as awesome as us, just come home with us and follow all of my rules. And that seemed like a fair trade to David Thibodeau. So he became one of David Koresh's inner circle very quickly. So what were these rules that David Thibodeau was cool cool following that everybody at Mount Carmel had to follow? Well, I'll tell you. Mandatory Bible study for everybody. It's three times a day, and that's for all ages. Worship is every Saturday. The rest of the week, everyone at Mount Carmel works to support the commune. Only a few people worked outside of Mount Carmel. They had like a grocery clerk here, a mailman there, because the outside world and the people in it were called Babylon. That was the word that was used to describe anybody that was part of the outside world or any aspect of the outside world. That world was sin. That world was the flesh. And you were to be separate always from Babylon and keep yourself apart from that evil. So TV, radio, stuff like that at uh, the compound was pretty limited. Um, there weren't a lot of rules for men, but women were not allowed to wear anything unnatural. So no jewelry. No makeup, nothing to um, distract from the natural beauty that had been been bestowed upon them by God. Um, Women had to maintain a certain modesty uh, so they could wear nothing form-fitting or revealing. They had, at least they weren't having to wear like the ankle-length dresses that had been the uniform of the Branch Davidians in the past. But they had to wear like, their shirts had to be baggy enough and long enough to cover their backside, stuff like that. Um... And all of that really seems like pretty standard conservative Christian adjacent compound rules. But then we get to David Koresh's rules about food. Yeah, food. I see your eyebrows. <laughs> Boom. Food. Yes, food. Uh, he allowed no dairy products whatsoever. Because according to David Koresh, milk is baby food. And the fact that humans indulge in continuing to consume baby food after infancy is, um, is, is an indulgent and sinful act. And so no dairy products, no milk, no cheese, no yogurt, nothing. No dairy products at all. Also, no sugar. Uh, so this place sounds super fun. Don't go to dinner at the Davidian complex. Also, he had some really strange and arbitrary rules about combining food. Stuff like you could not have vegetables and fruit in the same meal. 
And these things were subject to change at a moment's notice. And uh, all of these rules uh, were, of course, enforced through peer pressure. Because you're all up in each other's business, you can all monitor each other's activities and actions. And so uh, peer pressure and punishment. You would be punished for an infraction of these rules. I found reports of a woman who was like shunned for a day for saying that it was okay to eat cheese. So, <laughs> um, and if these rules seem arbitrary and random and disorienting and micro-controlling, that is because they were. And that is also by design. And if you, like David Thibodeau, were taken in by the recruitment and you agreed to follow these rules, it was no more Mr. Nice Preacher. No more aw shucks modesty routine. Now you were on the inside. Now you were privileged to know the truth. And now you got to see what happens when David Koresh dropped any pretense of being anything less than an actual literal messiah. So the preaching style of David Koresh. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Every Saturday, uh, David Koresh would gather everyone together who didn't have a job off campus, as it were. Everybody would gather together in the chapel with the doomsday clock on the floor uh, to hear him preach. There was not a comfortable seat in the house. I've seen video of him preaching. They don't even have real benches. It's just like rough wooden risers for everyone to sit on. No padding, nowhere. And these sermons would be all day affairs. It could be just for a couple hours. It could be for 10, 12 hours. However, the spirit moved David Koresh to talk that day. That was how long you were going to sit there and listen to it. And he wasn't, you know, I'm just a vessel for the message of the Lord anymore. But he also wasn't walking around thumping his chest saying, I am the son of God, worship me. No, 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 no. It was more manipulative than that. What he would do with his sermons is he would ask leading questions that had wrote call and response answers. So he would say things like, who is worthy to open this book of revelations and let loose the seals therein? And the crowd would go, the Lamb of God. And who is the Lamb of God? And the answer, of course, is David Koresh. Like, so he would lead them to tell him that he is their Messiah so that they would get caught in this sort of feedback loop of perpetually confirming his divinity and his authority over them. And this is every week, for hours at a time. So imagine, if you will, you are a member of this congregation, and you are sitting in this church, and you're listening to this man preach, and he is charismatic. There's no denying that. And his knowledge of the Bible is extensive. David Thibodeau actually referred to it as panoramic, that David Koresh could see the entire Bible from generate from gen generations, Genesis. He could see the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation all at once. Like he had this full bird's eye view of the word of God. His knowledge is so extensive and his interpretations so creative and uncanny, and his insights are always right at his fingertips, especially if his is the only voice you're hearing preaching anything about this book to you. Um, so, so that is what you are um, sort of taking as literal gospel because he's a messiah and a prophet, and you're listening for hours. And if your butt falls asleep, uh, from sitting on this hardwood bench for so long, or your eyes start to glaze over because lunch was hours ago and ain't nobody brought out so much as a packet of crackers for you, he will notice. 
because he is keyed into each of you. And that's when he starts screaming. Wake up! Get it through your skulls! This is life or death, because when the seals are opened and the trumpets sound, Babylon, because that's what everybody outside is called, Babylon will come for our blood because you know the truth and you follow God's chosen. Who? The Lamb of God. The Lamb of God! Like, And then you get all adrenalized and a little humiliated because he's screaming at you right in front of everybody, but your emotions are all a jumble and you're heightened and boom, you're right back into it, right in the palm of his hand. His preaching style is designed to soften his followers up and to keep them uncertain and malleable to his vision and utterly dependent on his guidance. And it was during one of these marathon preaching sessions that David Koresh was getting into the the hammer and tongs at the message and just preaching and building up to a crescendo. And then suddenly he stopped and he tilted his head to the side and slightly up as though listening to a voice from on high. And I can imagine the congregation all leaning forward to the edge of their seats. And the room is like pin drop silent as they wait, breathless, to hear what sacred prophecy they may be able to living witness tumbling from their Messiah's lips. And y'all, it was a doozy. Because that's the day that David Koresh introduced the Branch Davidians to his New Light Doctrine. Now, what is the New Light Doctrine? For one thing, uh, the thing that he made clear, as best he could, repeatedly, was that this, <clears throat> the New Light doc- Doctrine's not his idea, okay? He isn't the one who wants to do this, all right? God has told him that he has to do this, and since God told him and now he's telling you, now you have to do it, okay? So by divine mandate, all marriages of all relationships at Mount Carmel are hereby dissolved. Nobody's married. Men and women will now live separately. So you remember that three-story dormitory? The first floor was for the men. The men would live and sleep down there, and they were to remain celibate perpetually at all times. The second floor of this dormitory, that was for the women and children. And the third floor was for David and his, air quotes now, House of David. They lived up on the third floor. Now, what's the House of David? Well, David Koresh already has a wife. He's got his teenage bride, Rachel, and their baby son. But wouldn't you know, And again, this isn't his idea, okay? God told him. But he has to father 24 children by 24 different women, preferably virgins, but pickings being what they are from the congregation at Mount Carmel. And these 24 children, being holy and sprung from the seed of the Messiah himself, David Koresh, would then grow up to become the elders, the judges, the pillars of the new kingdom to come after the judgment day. So really, it's not that David Koresh wanted to hoard all of the women at Mount Carmel to himself in a deeply toxic, coercive harem situation. It was that God ordered him to establish the divine post-apocalyptic royal family. And we got to do what God says. So now every female of of reproductive age on Mount Carmel was to be made to be available to David Koresh. Because at any moment... 
God could reach down from on high through David and choose one of these women to become a wife of the house of David and carry his holy seed and bear one of the children of the divine prophecy. Oh, it totally tracks. I mean... Just 100%, right? Flawless logic. (laughs) So there you go. I mean, by the power (laughs) vested in Messiah me, I dissolve all of your marriages Mm -hmm. and I take them unto myself. It's a burden, I know. And like, guys, you don't understand. There's so many women. And imagine the environment and how, oh my God. you know, just how closed this society is mm. that people just said, yeah, okay. And how how absolute his authority yes. to be able to do that, to tell a man and a woman, you two are not married anymore. Your children from that marriage are no longer your children together. They are now the children of this of this church, of this compound. Like, guh, guh. So, shockingly, not everybody was on board with the New Light Doctrine. And families were straight up divided over it. Like, married couples. One half of the couple would want to stay and the other half of the couple would go. And y'all, it was not always the husband who wanted to go. There were cases where the wife left and the husband stayed. Or um, there was a family from Australia who had, they all traveled together from Australia. The parents left, their kids stayed because they were like 18 year olds and they were technically adults. Like, oh, so everyone who did stay, like if you're in that situation and your choice is either embrace this new doctrine or leave and be cut loose into Babylon. Right. I mean, is your everlasting soul? worth the risk right i mean that's a that's a very powerful carrot to put in front of somebody and if you're telling david koresh no you're telling god no and you don't tell god no just so it is like the stakes could not be higher as far as these folks are concerned so the people that stayed they made a choice and they chose to be all on board 110 bajillion percent they were in it so the men who stayed and decided and agreed to remain celibate and live on the bottom floor of the dormitory um these men were either uh guys like david thibodeau who were young and single and childless so really the rules didn't affect them or they were the former husbands of the women who were now part of david koresh's dating pool and they didn't want to, and like their children were there. Like they didn't want to abandon their families. So they had to stay or they just fucking believed and, and were all in. Right. So not every woman at Mount Carmel was a wife of the house of David. He had to, uh, sorry, not him. Oh, he wasn't making the choices. God had to pick them them for the the breeding of this generation this holy generation but every woman at mount carmel was potentially a wife of the house of david ultimately the total number of wives that he had i saw varying reports uh between uh 20 to 24 wives that he had by the end of this whole fiasco and they ranged in age from 40 to 14 some were reported as being as young as 13. So that's, ow. Um, and these wives, uh, once you once you were chosen to become a wife of the house of David, you had three jobs. 
And these jobs were the core center of the focus of your existence. One was have David Koresh's babies. Job number two, take care of David and see to his every need. And job number three was cultivate more young girls to be groomed up to be his wives, including and not limited to their own daughters from their previous relationships. More than one of the wives of the House of David groomed their own teenage daughters up to also become wives of the House of David. And I just can't fathom. Anyway, uh, it became competitive amongst the women to be chosen to be one of David's wives. They wanted that honor because if David chose you, that means that God chose you. And now you had that honor. You had been honored and chosen by God. And you were going to get to have one of these beautiful little House of David babies that you saw running all over the place with his big brown eyes and all that holy destiny. Ugh, who wouldn't want that job? However, how to put this? They were not encouraged to um, to approach David. They had to wait passively for his attentions. Any woman who did proactively try to proposition David was punished. Like spanked and shunned and denied food. Punished. Hoy. But back to the kids. There's all these beautiful little adorable House of David babies running around the place. Right. So these kids, they're everywhere. Okay. Um I think last count, like 14 of the children on this property were David Koresh's children. And there was also the older kids from the previous relations that had been uh, pre-New Light Doctrine. And they're all being raised by people who firmly believe in the core of their being that war is coming. Because remember, apocalypse, right? Always, always apocalypse. And also, in 92, there was an incident in Idaho called Ruby Ridge, where, and this was the first major standoff between law enforcement and some deeply entrenched, heavily armed, anti-government, off-the-grid, rugged individualists. And that incident ended tragically in a hail of bullets. So everyone at Mount Carmel was very aware that this could also be their fate. So they knew that instant obedience of their children could mean the difference between life or death. Like if they said drop, their kids needed to drop. Instantly, no back talk. So discipline at Mount Carmel was strict and it was constant. And it started at the age of eight months. Yeah. Eight-month-old babies were spanked. No, yeah. When I read that as well, that just, yeah. Oof. oof. Really? Like, oof. How do you, how, what, what do you discipline an eight-month-old for? I don't even know. Children who survived, they're adults now and they are available for interview. And they will tell you that they felt like they could never, ever do anything right. And the mothers of those children say that they have nothing but regrets because they would, at David Koresh's insistence and instruction, they would spank their children until there was blood on the paddle because they thought they needed to, because the Messiah told them to. Now, the people who left Mount Carmel, they knew about all of this. They knew about the sketchy polygamy. They knew about the underage girls. They knew about the bloody paddles. And they tried to blow the whistle. They tried to tell police. They tried to tell the media. And the cops would come and do a cursory look around and make sure everybody is whole of limb and the kids seem fine. And David denied all of the accusations and nobody said they were being hurt and nobody else fessed up. There was no complainant 
was a word that I heard thrown around, and I'll ask you about that later. So there really was no investigation into the child abuse allegations. Reporters would show up, and they would try to investigate, but they would find themselves really bamboozled by the charisma of David Koresh and his compound full of utterly devoted, shiny, happy people. So, now it's important to remember that law enforcement had been sort of long-distance eyeballing Mount Carmel ever since that shootout back in 1988. But ultimately, despite all of these reports about underage girls and child abuse, the thing that finally draws the full attention of the law to Mount Carmel was the reports of the Branch Davidians' relationship with guns. So... David Koresh had a lot of mouths to feed, and even the grocery store clerk and the mailman bringing home paychecks wasn't enough. And when your whole recruitment deal is, the world's going to end, so everyone give up your earthly everything and come live with me so we can ride out the apocalypse, people aren't exactly showing up on your doorstep with buckets of cash. So how are you going to make ends meet? Well, David Koresh and his inner circle of the most fiercely devoted men Uh, Guys like Steve Schneider, his second-in-command, guys like David Thibodeau, they took up the time-honored Texas traditional side hustle of gun shows. Have you ever been to a gun show? Oh my gosh, when I was young, I had with my dad. (laughs) He would, my dad collected guns and Mm -hmm. gun shows are wild. They, right. It's incredible. Like it's a trade show, you know, it's a big. It's like a flea market. Yeah, it's a, you know big open space and there are Mm -hmm. tables and the tables have displays and there are people that are ready to talk you up and answer your questions and get something in your hands that do you you know let you feel it let you decide you know if you like it and talk you into buying it yeah they are tables covered with weapons with guns and knives and some more guns and some ammo and would you like a gun and uh like decorative items like disarmed grenades that you could use as a paperweight. Uh, and it's like, to me, it's like the Second Amendment and the free market hooked up and had a really scary baby. <laughs> That's a gun show. And like pre-COVID times, it was almost like a festival atmosphere. Like you could walk around and look at guns and talk to some people and like get some barbecue at the truck out in the parking lot. <laughs> Stuff like that. And in the late 80s, early 90s, this was not a super regulated situation. It's still not. (laughs) But like the idea of a background check, (laughs) that's adorable. We might might not even check if you have a driver's license. Are you kidding me? (laughs) Do you want, do you have money? I have gun. Let's trade those things. Like that's essentially how it worked. So these Branch Davidians, they start going to gun shows, and they're buying up old guns, taking them home, refurbishing them, and selling them for profit. This was their business. And it was how they put food on the table for the 100-plus people back at the compound. And in the process, they also added to their doomsday prepper stockpile of guns and ammo and toilet paper and canned food and panic water and military surplus MREs, because they knew, they were told every day, that there was a war coming. I found, again, David Thibodeau, he's everywhere. He had a really good quote sort of about their mindset at this time, and I will now share that with you. Quote, In the seven seals, you start to understand that we are setting up the kingdom of God to a certain extent, and that is to be protected. 
We were sheep, but at the same time, we weren't going to stand up to being run over or lied about. We were definitely the sheep of God, and the sheep of God don't fear the wolves. When you believe you're on the right path, you don't really fear anything. So there kind of was an army mentality in the sense that our group was our group and we fear God. We don't fear what man can do to us. We fear what God can do to us. End quote. So they're intense, the Branch Davidians. And they are living in a state uh, always of like spun up and heightened paranoia. And that paranoia got confirmed for them when in 1993, they realized that the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms was taking a hard look at David Koresh and his Branch Davidians at their little compound outside of Waco, Texas. The ATF started their investigation by sending an undercover agent by the name of Rodriguez. Robert Rodriguez, no relation to the filmmaker. And Robert Rodriguez, Agent Rodriguez, (laughs) moved in across the street from the compound. Now, the Branch Davidians are paranoid and territorial, and they got nothing better to do than watch what's going on at the edge of their property. So they noticed him move in. They clocked him immediately. But it's still Texas, right? So they were still super friendly. They, like, invited him over. They introduced him around. They fed him a cheeseless dinner. <laughs> they showed him their guns. They took him shooting on their subterranean firing range. Like, I suspect that this was not just neighborliness. This was also keeping friends close and enemies closer kind of a situation. And, like, hey, if Agent Rodriguez of the ATF happened to get converted to be a Branch Davidian in the process, then Yahtzee, you know? <laughs> Now, over the course of their initial investigation and the things that Rodriguez was observing, they managed to get actionable intel that the Branch Davidians were modifying semi-automatic weapons to be full-on automatic weapons, which is, from what I understand, illegal. And uh, that they were also taking some of those dud grenade paperweights and arming those to be active live explosives. So it was on those grounds that they got a warrant. And I have questions for you about that process. We'll talk about that in a minute. A warrant to arrest David Koresh. So they get their warrant and they start planning how exactly to go into the Branch Davidian compound and extract the leader of the Branch Davidians. So here's the plan. The morning of Saturday, February 28th, 1993. Their plan was to wait at the edge of the property. Now, they were going to have like 75 ATF agents in full tactical gear waiting, and Waco is flat. So um, they would have to have them lying in wait in like cattle trucks so that the Branch Davidians would look out and see ranching equipment and not federal agents. And they would wait at the edges of the property for Saturday morning worship to end, and then the men to bebop out of the chapel and go out into the fields to work and and do their chores. And so then the ATF agents plan to move in, separate the men from the women and children and from the armory. And then the choppers would come in and provide backup. The prison buses that they had commissioned would come in to haul away everyone that they would arrest. And um, they would arrest David, anyone who resisted, and detain everyone else for questioning and seize any illegal firearms that they found. Boom, boom, boom. Tidy little plan. Here are the problems. It had rained Friday night. So Saturday morning, all of the grounds were a mudslide. Nobody left the chapel to go do work outside because they couldn't. It was too muddy. 
So that whole part of the plan is shot. And with Ruby Ridge fresh on everybody's minds, still, in anticipation of a firefight, the ATF gave the local hospital in Waco a heads up to expect incoming bullet wounds. Well, Waco's a small town. So one of the nurses at the emergency room at the hospital heard about this, and she's engaged to a cameraman for the local news station. So she tells her fiancé about this heads-up that she got about incoming bullet wounds from the cops. So her fiancé, the cameraman for the news station, he goes and tells his boss, and wouldn't you know, the news station dispatches a team to go report on this major police action that's going to be happening outside of Waco. Holy shit. But the news crew got lost on their way out to Mount Carmel, trying to look around on these rural back roads. They don't know where the hell they are, so they flag down someone who does. It's a mailman. And they ask him, hey, can you give us directions to Mount Carmel? And the mailman gives them directions, and then he sort of chats them up for a little bit. Why are you looking for Mount Carmel? And they tell him, we heard rumors that there's going to be this big police raid out there. Okay, meanwhile, back at the compound. Undercover ATF agent Rodriguez is inside the compound. He's sort of keeping an eye on the situation leading up to the raid. And he happens to be talking to David Koresh when the phone rings. David picks it up. Oops, it's the mailman. He's a Branch Davidian. So he lets David know, um, there's going to be a big police raid today. They're coming for you. Okay, so David Koresh hangs up the phone, shakes hands with Agent Rodriguez and tells him, you know, it's about time for you to go. So Agent Rodriguez leaves. He walks off of Mount Carmel. He walks up to the cattle trucks that are posted up on the street. And he tells them, uh, they know you're coming. You have completely lost the element of surprise. The entire foundation of your plan is shattered to pieces. Do not do this. Call it off. And that was really the last best opportunity to avert catastrophe. And the ATF did not take it. They went ahead with the raid. So, 70-plus fully armed and armored ATF agents, on they come pouring out of the cattle trucks, and they close in on the central buildings at Mount Carmel, in the compound where David Koresh himself is standing in the doorway to the chapel. And the ATF is rolling up and they're yelling at him, ATF, get on the ground, get down on the ground, get your hands up. And David is yelling at them, you need to go. We have women and children in here. Don't shoot. And then boom, gunshot. Each side will tell you that the other side fired first. Nobody knows for sure. All we do know is that it rained bullets that day at Mount Carmel. The ATF were firing into the buildings. The Branch Davidians are firing out through the windows, firing out through their own walls. Inside the buildings, mothers are screaming at their children to get down and take cover. They're flinging themselves over their children's bodies to protect them from the flying glass and the bullets. Outside, ATF agents are hollering for medics that can't get a break in the crossfire to get to them. They're bleeding out in the mud that's all over this property. The compound grounds are so thick with bullet casings that every footstep crunches with metal. It is a constant screaming cacophony of gunshots flying in all directions. Nobody is safe. Now, the average firefight in law enforcement lasts less than a minute. The ATF and the Branch Davidians exchanged fire for two hours. 49 minutes into the raid, David Koresh called 911. He called and he talked to Sheriff's Department Lieutenant Lynch. 
and he begged them. These are the local police. They weren't involved in this raid. This was a federal action. He begged them to please call the ATF and tell them to back off. He told them, some of my people are dead. Some of their people are dead. And this is their fault. They need to stop. And Lieutenant Lynch is trying to get assess the situation. And you can hear on the call, he's like, okay, so you've got some casualties. Can you tell me how many people are hurt? How many people are dead? And David replies, quote, the thing is, there is a God that sits on a throne. I know that sounds crazy to you, but you'll find out soon enough. There are seven seals in the book of Revelation. I shit you not, he starts trying to preach to the guy on 911 who's trying to discuss and assess the massive firefight that is ongoing outside. This raid is a massive failure. And it is very well documented. Documented? Documented. Totally documented. Or documented. Sure. <laughs> because you remember that news crew? They yeah. got good directions. They followed them. They got to Mount Carmel. They filmed the whole thing and the footage. Have you seen it? Oh, not. I had. I didn't watch all the footage. I've seen. Oh, my God. Yeah. It is terrifying. Yeah. It is just a war zone. <sighs> so finally, after a solid two hours of mayhem at 1130 a.m. on a Saturday, they call a ceasefire. And as the smoke clears, they're able to assess the damage and count the bodies. God, yep. Four, four ATF agents are killed. Fifteen are badly wounded. And inside the compound, five Branch Davidians are either dead or bleeding out, with dozens more wounded, including David Koresh himself. So the Branch Davidians set about barricading themselves in. They know what to do. They've been preparing for this for decades. Just like their Messiah, David Koresh, told them Babylon had come knocking at the door, howling for their blood. And the world was finally, at long prophesied last, going to end. As the ATF gathered up their broken bodies of their fallen agents and withdrew to the borders of Mount Carmel, everyone hunkered down for what would be the longest standoff in law enforcement history. And however ill-advised the raid was, you you didn't, they didn't expect to meet this much resistance no. to execute mm -mm. the raid and to arrest David Koresh. No, they were not, but they came loaded for bear but, and then they got bear yes and i mean they so, had a sense though of the potential mm -hmm. for dangerousness you right. know there is definitely indicia that indicia that's a fun it word. is a great it's, word i like it um, that should be your drag name ah indicia indicia, indicia. All right. okay <laughs> so hey that happened yeah and, like, I've got some questions, but I think that you, my brilliant lawyer friend, uh, you know, you know, you know what my questions are. I do. I do. Where do you want to start? So, you want to, like, you want to, you want to talk about bigamy or probable uh, cause or where? Yeah, let's, let's, let's go back. Let's start with, um, so, so marrying a whole bunch of fucking people. So. How's that? Yeah. How legal is so, that? The state of Texas would frown upon <laughs> such a thing. Um, but no, so bigamy is illegal and illegal mm -hmm. in Texas. It's a felony. 
Um, oh. Yeah, if you go to the Texas Penal Code, it's section 2501, and mm-hmm. you commit an offense, you know, if um, you purport to marry a person when mm-hmm. you are already married. And um, or if you, you know, basically try to have a common law marriage, because um, it would be an offense if you are married, but then Mm -hmm. you cohabitate and hold out that you're married and have the intent to be married to another person. Mm -hmm. So very clearly, you know, the um, the state of Texas would 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 have reason to believe that there's some problematic you know, marriages. So, uh, like, outside of the extreme ickiness of the David Koresh situation, why is bigamy illegal? Ah, well, I mean, like, what's the problem? That's a okay. So that's a a, a policy, and you know, we've always we we kind of talked about this before. The legislature, in making laws, is setting forth and codifying the mores and the norms of society, mm-hmm. and you know that dis. Sometimes it's driven by, you know, our religious and moral conventions. Um, Sometimes Mm -hmm. it's just policy, like we've analyzed the data and enough people are like, yeah, we should make a law about it. So, um, you know, I I didn't do a lot of research into why, you know, are people still very strong on bigamy laws? But, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it is it is codified in our statutes. If you mm-hmm. are, uh, yeah, it's it's a third degree felony. F at the time of the commission, um, you purport mm-hmm. to marry somebody. It's an elevated crime if the um, the person, the married individual, is purporting to marry is seventeen years mm-hmm. of age, and it's a um, first degree felony if they're sixteen years of age. So, oh, um, okay, you know. But what about if they're what about if they're fourteen? So, how do we feel? Yeah. I, you remember last time when we talked <laughs> about Texas. the whole child marriage thing? Yeah. I mean, so, mm-hmm. you know, it it was already enough, like, weighing on me that he could legally have <laughs> right. married a 14-year-old. Um, mm-hmm. You know, but I do think trying to take on a bunch of underage, of minor children <sighs> as your wives, I mean, that... Yeah that is criminal behavior in the eyes of the state. Mm-hmm. And um, now are there exceptions for your religion? So, like, could he have said, if that had been an issue, could he have said, ah, uh, but it is my religious belief. Let me explain to you in a 10 hour sermon, how this is correct by God for so, me. Um, You know, I'm sure that um, had he survived and that was the case that would become an issue Spoiler alert. Um, there was <laughs> yeah wasn't there was his name warren jeffries i mean it wasn't um there was another religious leader who was um who had a number of um brides i want to say his name was warren jeffries oh man i don't know oh it was warren jeffs i was so close but he was convicted of sexual assault. Mm. And um, I believe, I don't know if it was part of the case, but I believe there was this whole idea of, but he was a religious leader and this was mm. part of their practice and different beliefs. But um, Texas found him guilty of, of sexual assault of a child. Oh, wow. Okay. Because, um, yeah, I think... You know, certain laws, if they was they will withstand scrutiny when 
the overriding purpose is not to mm-hmm. prevent somebody from the exercise of the religion. There's a public interest element to it. Okay. And that makes sense. You know, um, you're welcome to try to challenge the law, mm-hmm. but that does not mean your challenge will survive. And that mm-hmm. doesn't mean that you will be found, you know, you would be acquitted of the charge. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so I think my other question was about, I don't know how deep you dove into gun laws. So, uh, yeah. So um, when I looked into some of the the cross references, mm-hmm. I think it was just there are laws that um, prohibit the uh, modification mm-hmm. of certain guns. You know, for example, the conversion kits to take a semi-automatic to an automatic. Mm-hmm. That's referenced. I didn't want to get deep in the weeds because those laws, um, there's so many that that yeah. was a rabbit hole that I didn't know would really elucidate anything mm-hmm. except for the fact that there was um, there was enough mm-hmm. objective evidence. There were enough sources to confirm that this was happening mm-hmm. and that was enough for the ATF to act on. It was, you know, they had some um, some awareness of the amount of of um, gunpowder that Mm -hmm. was being purchased they knew um, the amount like thousands and thousands of dollars in you know um, guns being delivered Mm -hmm. and so they had these um, you know data points that were at least suggestive that there would be enough um, there would be enough to investigate to potentially find more crimes i guess that's kind of leading into the probable cause so um, before we dive into that, uh-huh. uh, I had heard, um, I saw an interview with a, a member of law enforcement who had said that they could not act on the yeah. reports about child abuse because there was no complainant. Okay. What does that mean? So a complainant is just the person who is going to file charges, a person mm-hmm. that um, can be a plaintiff or, you know, the person who... Um, you know, they would need to support a particular mm-hmm. type of investigation or charges. And what I, I kept coming across the idea that there wasn't enough, um, there just wasn't enough evidence mm-hmm. to support. And I think it was some just of it rumor. Was, it was just disgruntled former cult members. Yes. Stuff like that. Stuff that it was, you know, okay. not corroborated or they weren't able to corroborate it. It was, you know, um, the, the people making the complaint and saying it was happening mm-hmm. um, weren't the people that would have firsthand direct knowledge. And okay. so um, the other thing I saw, because I thought um, it seemed weird that they had all this information about, you know, the uh, the beliefs and uh, David Crush mm-hmm. taking of wives and the grooming and this, um, mm-hmm. you know, that none of these would substantiate or justify, um, you know, moving in because of child abuse. And some of it I saw was temporal, like that um, during the standoff, when they were looking at the, Mm -hmm. you know, child abuse questions, they weren't sure that there was um, like active or ongoing. They only had these, these reports of Mm -hmm. potential acts that had happened at some point in time that they didn't have direct evidence of. But they don't have like, it happened on this day at this time with these witnesses who can all corroborate it. They just had 
hearsay. Right. And they were. Although that might be a very specific legal noun that that I'm misusing. Yeah. Hearsay has definitely got a very specific legal definition. It's like one of the most fun rules of evidence. I just like to throw words out like that that make it sound like I'm smart like you. But there were, (laughs) I mean, Child Protective Services, um, there were caseworkers that did you know, do site visits and did interview people. And so I think that it's a rough um, place that they were in, that there are these um, allegations, but there wasn't enough support to do more. And it just seems so frustrating after the fact when you're, when you're doing the autopsy of what happened. Yeah. The the postmortem on this entire thing, this, the reason we've got three podcast episodes at least for this, uh, it really, there's so much tragic woulda, coulda, shoulda. Yeah. And it's, uh, you know, it's even written about in the the later court cases, like the, you know, the idea that this was a dangerous situation mm-hmm. was, um, was present in the minds of the people that were investigating and looking into it. He mm-hmm. apparently, David Crash apparently made a comment to one of the caseworkers saying that, um, uh, the time was coming, you know, of revelations uh-huh. and as a, that he was a messenger and uh-huh. um, what would follow would make the Los Angeles riots pale in comparison. Eek. He said to a caseworker, he says, yes. This. And, um, you know, so that would was something he said to a caseworker while at the same time, he's telling his followers that before 1993, before Passover, mm-hmm. the end's going to be here. So there was, um, when you're looking at like, well, why didn't they just intervene? It seemed like it was in the water. It was clearly in the air to them. They knew Mm -hmm. that law enforcement was closing in. Um, No, they knew their, their instincts on that were sharp. That's what paranoia will do for you. Absolutely. And, um, Mm -hmm. as far as child abuse, I think there was a, um, child custody hearing in Michigan, Mm-hmm. Regarding one of the followers, uh, Sherry Jewell. Okay. And discussing the marriage of young children and the, you know, girls as young as 12 was a Ugh, point uh-huh. that came up in that child custody dispute. Oh, wow. And that uh-huh. um, actually caught the attention of media and then caught the attention of the ATF and other law enforcement, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so it's just, I think. That the ATF was able to, from its investigative tools and from Mm -hmm. its dragnet, they were able to pull together objective evidence that would, um, that they could base a warrant on. Mm. So. And so ultimately it was the weapons that were the basis of the warrant, allowing them to move in and put a stop to everything that was going on. Yes. So it looks like. At this place. Yes. And just a, a funny side note, um. Mm. There was in um, one of the court cases, they said one other consideration that was like put before the court was that the ATF had been facing budget scrutiny and that they needed (gasps) a successful high publicity operation to warrant its continued existence. And that, you know, um, plaintiffs in some of the suits that happened after the the 51 day siege um, Mm -hmm. and standoff and then. You know, Siege, they alleged, hey, this was a driving factor for the ATF's involvement. Mm. But um, the ATF caught wind of this cult Mm -hmm. operating in Texas. Then um, 
they received reports from numerous sources. They got one from UPS saying there are all these deliveries of guns and, um, mm-hmm. you know, inert grenade casings and gunpowder right. and explosives. They got other reports. Um, you know, some of them were, I think, former cult members. Some of them were firearms mm-hmm. dealers. And mm-hmm. so they had um, they had information that substantiated at the very least that they had a lot of munition you know, Good. parts uh-huh. and, you know, capabilities and that they were illegally converting guns. And mm-hmm. that became um, the, ba- you know, the basis for wanting to perform and conduct the raid and arrest David Koresh. So um, mm-hmm. they and, you know, they did it by obtaining warrants, which means that a judge had to sign off on it. They looked and determined mm-hmm. that there was um you know, objective evidence that would lead a person to believe that the crimes that were being alleged were ongoing. Mm-hmm. Like, if he was buying a hundred pound bags of flour and eggs and milk and sugar, he's making cake. Right. Okay. So, but he's buying up guns and ammo and gunpowder and inert grenade casings. He's not making cake. That's right. So, <laughs> but he's making something. Yeah. No, that's, that's, that was a great way to put it. The um, the Supreme Court has said, <laughs> I, "I'm hungry," so I went. When to you're cake. like, "Well, what what is the probable cause that they would have needed to show?" And it's a mm-hmm. uh, probable cause exists where the the known facts and circumstances are sufficient to warrant a man of reasonable prudence mm-hmm. in the belief that contraband or evidence of a crime will be found. Okay, and so. You know, if the judge was looking and they have these multiple sources, Mm -hmm. you know, that are supplying what, uh, you know, is believed to be credible information Mm -hmm. of the crime, I could see that those points that were raised would be enough to say, okay, it doesn't mean that you're going to find the person guilty, but that's enough to do a closer look. Mm -hmm. That's enough to justify a search Um, because the first the Fourth Amendment only protects us from an unreasonable search and seizure. Oh, okay. And so, um, you know, just for a a fun little refresher, I've got that. Yes, let's. I don't don't know why any of us would need to review the various amendments of the Constitution in this day and age, but please proceed. Oh, sure. Yeah. So the Fourth Amendment, that's the right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects Mm -hmm. against unreasonable searches and seizures Mm -hmm. shall not be violated, and no warrants shall issue but upon probable cause supported by oath or affirmation and particularly describing the place to be searched and the persons or things to be seized. Mm -hmm. And so in this case, yeah, in this case, it was, you know, Mr. David Koresh, mm-hmm. a.k.a. Vernon Howell, or I said that backwards, Vernon Howell, a.k.a. AKA David Koresh. David Koresh, and a search of the proper, you know, property. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, it had to be more than a hunch. Mm-hmm. And it had to be, you know, reasonable suspicion supported by some evidence. And it seems like that that standard is satisfied. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. What else you got? Anything? <laughs> ah, yeah. I was just amazed that that the child abuse angle is so muddled Mm -hmm. because when we look at it after the fact we're like come on right 
you know. But I like, feel I feel like at the time they were really tapping the brakes because of the religious angle and the yeah, religious well, and the freedom to practice your religion and and te- Texas is ha oh, we're a lot of things and most of those things are very tangled up in rugged individual personal freedoms. So your freedom to to spank your kids if you want to spank your kids and your freedom to practice your religion as long as it looks like Christianity and your freedom to have all the guns you want within a certain reasonable limit. Well, well no, absolutely. Like it and when you look at the uh those points, it wasn't the fact that this uh group living outside of Texas had a lot of guns. Mm-hmm. That wasn't uh, that wouldn't be enough. Right. I can't imagine that would have been um, looked at or frowned upon. No. You know, well, there are a lot of people there. Mm-hmm. And if all of them have a couple guns, well, that just... That's a couple hundred guns. Yeah. Yeah. That's just a couple hundred guns. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it it really had to be supported by the, the idea of how they were um, said to be stockpiling and mm-hmm. to what end. Because um, part of the idea of allowing this raid there had to have been kind of a public interest yeah you know that atf would have had to show that there were other potentialities Mm -hmm. and that this crime you know was likely to be occurring Mm -hmm. um and that for the safety of the public they needed to um raid the the compound right and i'm pretty sure um you know as it comes out as we look at it later diagnostically, mm-hmm. everybody was aware that you have to be very careful, you know, what, not even withstanding Ruby Ridge, mm-hmm. you would just have to be very careful executing a raid on a compound like that, right. where there are going to be so many people, women, children, babies, so many of them. Yeah, so many children, just so many blind corners. Yeah, just, just an impossible, uh, just nest of uh, potential collateral damage in that yeah. place. And it just seemed like a series of unfortunate mishaps that, you know, botched that that mm-hmm. entire raid and trying to execute a search warrant and an arrest warrant. Because I think that original plan, they were supposed to what, like move in mm-hmm. hard and fast, encir- you know, encircle the compound. Right. Get get in separate they were supposed to like move in and cut cut the men off from the central buildings so that nobody could get a gun and they were separated from the women and children and then that would allow them to peacefully uh get them i saw interviews with david koresh's family he's got a brother out there by the way and a mom and uh they were just flabbergasted like why didn't they just serve him with the warrant any other time he went into town he went to gun shows. Yeah. He um, he had an ATF agent come over to his house. Like, why didn't they take any of all of these many, many other opportunities they could have to just scoop him up without having to physically, with 70 plus heavily armed men, confront an entrenched yes. compound? Like, what? And Absolutely. I feel like that is what really um, made people start crying publicity stunt. Because it really felt excessive yes. and unnecessary. And the involvement of the media, like the whole fact that the media, I don't know, that that it seems like once they knew that there was media mm-hmm. and that the word had gotten back to the compound, there was a lot of, um, there's a lot in the investigation reports that are done after 
uh, after the fact that focus on that. Like, mm-hmm. you know, who was, who was taking in all of this information and did right. they make the right call? And uh, something about the uh, Rodriguez that I found funny is um, the ATF, when they were trying mm-hmm. to round up information, they sent in Rodriguez as an undercover and there mm-hmm. was another guy. And mm. they had posed as students okay. at the nearby Texas State Technical College. Okay. However. I've heard about this. Go on. Yeah. So part of the investigation, and that's why they lived, you know, in that house down the road. Mm-hmm. Apparently, uh, after they had attended the Bible study groups a couple times, mm-hmm. the Davidians apparently reported that they never believed the agents were merely college students <laughs> because they were too old and they drove too expensive cars it's <laughs> like it, you weren't even trying <laughs> it just cracked me up that like yes you have this highly paranoid group of you know doomsday preppers yeah and you know they saw this coming from a mile off and it just fed the paranoia yeah, and then absolutely rodriguez was there when the call came back and david crush came in shaking they're mm-hmm. on to us and the authorities are going to be coming in yeah. And he was able to tell from David Koresh's demeanor mm-hmm. that they were completely on to the whole operation. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, because he told him to leave. Yeah. And like, how how much of, of Agent Rodriguez's life flashed before his eyes in that moment when he realized that David Koresh knew? <laughs> like, oh. I know. Whew. Oh, the other... Um, Fun little point was that in all of the uh, court documents I was looking at and in the investigative materials um, we'll talk about next time mm-hmm. because it had to do with the 51 day standoff and, right. you know, analyzing uh, the events that occurred. The Branch Davidians are always referred to as a cult. They are a cult <laughs> operating in Waco, the cult members. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I thought nobody that- is unclear about that. That's Nobody right. is arguing that point ever. No, they're not. And it's, um, I think it goes to what we talked about last time. You know, it's, it is a judgment mm-hmm. and it is much clearer after the fact. And True. Yeah. when we're analyzing, you know, what they were doing and what the sermons looked and felt like and what the treatment of the members on the inside mm-hmm. was and how their daily lives were this regimen meant to disrupt their ability mm-hmm. to protest and their ability right. to resist. I mean, it, it walked like a cult. Mm-hmm. If it walks like a cult and it disrupts your ability to apply critical thinking to anything like a cult, it's probably a cult. Probably a cult. <laughs> this, is, this is a long shot there. Yes. Oh, my God. Like, I thought I knew this story because of, born and raised in Texas. Everybody yeah. knows Waco. As a teenager, when this happened, the first thing I heard was a joke. It says, what is... What does Waco stand for? What does WACO stand for? What's that? We ain't coming out. Oh, I never heard yeah. that one. You never heard that I one? I don't know. Maybe no, I have. Was, I'm old. Maybe it was just my my incredibly poor taste family that bandied that one about. No, that's a, <laughs> We ain't coming out. I had no idea. Yeah. Oh, it's in there now. <laughs> like that's a really niche joke though <laughs> there's very specific scenarios where you can tell it <laughs> i'm gonna tell it to you next week and pretend it's brand new <laughs> All 
right. Thank you all for listening. We do appreciate you. There's still a whole lot more story to come, so stay tuned for the next chapter of this ongoing Waco saga. If you'd like to hang out with us in between episodes, we are on all the social medias at OSWPodYall. That's at O-S-W-P-O-D-Y-A-L-L. Or you can email us at outlawsandscornedwomen at gmail.com. If you're really enjoying what you're hearing, then you can hop over to patreon.com slash OSWPodYall, where patrons get access to all kinds of fun perks like outtakes or our ongoing recap of Law & Order SVU, stuff like that. As always, neither of us are journalists or investigators of any official kind, so we will be posting links to all of our sources in the show notes. And I think that is it, so... Y'all stay safe out there, and we'll see you next time. Bye.